Hey everyone, this is Holly and this is Gap to Gap Radio and welcome to this week's show. We've got an exciting guest, uh, consider a friend of mine and uh, his name is Kurt Walker. He's the assistant coach at UCLA softball and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the current season and talk about um, what's um, going on with him personally, his his career as he's uh, moved on and uh, we'll talk about, uh, kind of get back and forth a couple things on his on his journey. So, Kirk, welcome to the show. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Really, uh, really exciting. It's really kind of, uh, uh, this is, I think, the sixth show, and I've had a middle school coach. I've had, you're the uh, second college program of which has been, uh, currently ranked number one, and I'm hoping I was just thinking before because I had uh, uh, Lonnie from uh, Florida State on here, and they were number oh, yeah. one at the time, and now they're number three. You guys are number one, so I'm hoping I'm not a jinx. I'm going to have to stop calling uh, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. So, oh, but, it's a it's a long season. Everyone goes up and down, so <laughs> that is for sure. And of course, you've done it a long time. You've been doing this, uh, I guess, since. When was the, your first year as a coach? You started out my at, first, uh, yeah. Yeah, my first year uh, officially hired at a college was um, 1988. But mm-hmm. um, I started coaching actually um, about my junior, by start of my junior year, I was completely in, an, in a coaching role and working with all the hitters and the pitchers and uh, certainly was huh. an undergrad assistant at the time uh, on oh, full fantastic. scholarship. So it was started, started when I was pretty, pretty young. Now you were when you were uh, uh, an assistant, graduate assistant. That was when you were at UCLA at the time. Yeah, yeah. I went in as yeah. an undergrad and started yeah. with the team, um, and was working as a manager, and then uh, really was on full scholarship. And and by like I said, by my junior year, um, I was really I was overseeing all the pitchers and working with uh-huh. all the hitters, and really kind of fully ingrained in coaching and complete uh, completely. And uh, when Fantastic. I graduated, I had the offer <laughs> of being a, a grad student at UCLA in neurophysiology, uh, or um, I was offered a full-time uh, coaching position at UCLA, and, and I kind of went that route. So yeah, 30, 36 years later, I'm still doing Goodness. it. So. <laughs> wow, wow. So no, you've had an uh, interesting, a unique, I would say, possibly uh, route in that <clears throat> you were a men's fast pitch coach. Uh, athlete correct yeah i started actually didn't start playing men's fast pitch until after i had been coaching um and oh, okay. won several national titles as a coach so mm-hmm. i i certainly was active as a player and and throwing mm-hmm. batting practice and and being you know actively involved as an athlete but i wasn't competing and it was mm-hmm. uh sheila sheila cornell dowdy who was on the olympic team at the time played in a men's league in the off season here in LA. And she said, Kirk, you should, you need to come out and they need pitchers in the league and you should come out and play. And, and I did, and I was hooked and <laughs> I play, started to play pretty competitively until I uh, blew out my knee and then uh, retired for a pretty good chunk of time. Most of the time I was up in Oregon and uh, ironically mm-hmm. um, another athlete of mine, Debbie Day, who was an all American at Arizona and, and uh, currently the head coach at Cal Lutheran, uh, university. Um, mm-hmm. She was playing men's fast pitch here in Burbank and she had to miss the game. And, and she said, Hey, I know you're still throwing VP. Can you come out and throw in this game? And I did. And again, I got hooked. And the last <laughs> uh, six years I've been playing competitively on three teams and won two national titles um, in the wow. last six years. So it's been, okay. uh, been a fun yeah. run and yeah. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, you're currently playing. Again. playing. Yeah. I'm currently playing, yes. Yeah. I am. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's uh, fast pitch. When I was young, uh, 15, 16 or something, there was a um, – I was uh, pretty decent, and uh, um, there was a neighbor had a men's fast pitch. First time I ever even knew much about uh, men's fast pitch or anything, and he wanted to throw to somebody, and I, it was uh, – um, I caught him and everything it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. Uh, but yeah. that was in uh, Indiana. And I, th- I don't know, honestly, uh, if how much is, but in California, it sounds like it's pretty big men's fast pitch. 
Well, actually, ironically, it's uh, the Midwest. The Upper Midwest is is pretty upper strong. Midwest. So yeah. uh, the, yeah. the national championships every year are in um, in uh, South Dakota, and huh. uh, a lot of the teams are from that Minnesota and Illinois and uh, up in that Upper Midwest. So it's, yeah, it's still pretty big up there. Not as big as it used to be, but um, mm-hmm. the one nice thing here in California is that we're able to play year-round. But uh, I'll tell you, I play in a, in a rec league on Wednesday nights, and there are guys <laughs> that are 60-plus years old, and there are guys that are, you know, 16, 17, right, in, you know, oh, playing in high school ball cool. and doing a little bit yeah. of both. So it's an interesting, yeah. uh, you know, uh, yeah. disparaging in age, but there just aren't a, a ton of players still playing. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot that play to pretty – deep into their careers. Yeah. Now, um, it is not something I planned on asking, but as, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about it because uh, I, I, it has to be a unique experience as a coach um, to play uh, competitive, high competitive at the same sport that you're coaching. Does that have a tendency to, as you're playing, to help you maybe relate to your players a little bit better? Well, Holly, it's a really interesting thing that you bring up because uh, I'll tell you this: when I when I first started playing, um, you know, I was coaching highly competitive ball and, and coaching um, national team level players. And so when uh-huh. I started playing, um, Lisa Fernandez was uh, one of the athletes I was coaching at the time. And and um, w- the second year I was doing this, I actually put together a women's team, which was mostly the Olympians, and uh-huh. um, put them into the men's league. And myself, I was a pitcher, and then my catcher was a, a male. And we played uh-huh. the men's league. And um, Lisa specifically said, you know, I always believed everything you said, and I always, you know, <laughs> respected everything you said. But she's like, but it just means so much more knowing that you've been on the mound with bases loaded right. and a big game on the line. And, and it just, it really kind of gave a little bit more depth I guess, and legitimacy uh-huh. to a lot of things that I'd always been coaching. So that was interesting from a player's perspective. From yeah. my perspective, yeah. it absolutely was a powerful thing um, for me to be able to kind of experience um, not just physically, but actually the emotions and the, uh-huh. the tensions and the anxiety that you go through as an athlete, honestly, never really fully experienced. So it definitely yeah. uh, impacted me completely. And uh-huh. Again, now coming out of retirement, um, I, I found another great love and an outlet in the sport that really kind of rejuvenated um, some aspects of my coaching because it, yeah. it reminded me of a lot of things again um, after being retired for about 15 years. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I love it, and uh, we'll continue to try and do it as, as long as I can or as much as I can, um, but uh, it's, it's definitely, it definitely adds to my coaching um, um, I guess repertoire or, or or ability to kind of relate. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Now, your role, your current role, is that as pitching coach? Um, we do everything. So uh, last okay. year I, I was overseeing pitching, um, and this year I've, I've overseeing the defense and working with mm-hmm. Lisa doing the pitching. It's the first time she's back doing the pitching. So we yeah. kind of all work hand in hand. The nice thing with Kelly, Lisa, and I is that um, I grew up, you know. They grew up, um, you know, playing, and I was coaching them. Uh-huh. So we always worked very close oh. together. Uh, Kelly was yeah. his pitching uh, catcher, and so our our belief system in pitching mechanics and pitching philosophy are very much aligned. So we kind of uh-huh. interchange and work with our pitchers um, from different perspectives, and um, and it works oh. well, and it's it's exciting, yeah. and it's fun, and it keeps it fresh. So yeah. Yeah, one of the things uh, I do uh, individual lessons a lot over here, and um, it's not a great business model, but I like, um, like I, I sometimes even encourage that. Let's say I've been working with someone for three years. I think it's probably a good idea after a couple of years for her to find someone else uh, that's going yeah. to be uh, be pretty good. Now I don't want to lose her and that kind of stuff. But yeah. I think getting different perspectives are, are pretty, is pretty healthy. I, I think absolutely. And I think that's true of any, um, any athlete, but I, I would say anybody, even in the business world professionally, that, uh-huh. um, you know, when you are not challenged um, to think about things differently, then uh-huh. your own development can be kind of stifled. Um, obviously with something like hitting, you wouldn't want to necessarily jump around to a complete different, you know, complete different right. philosophy. But certainly yeah. hearing the language and the, the cues and the way to, to kind of think about 
uh, this skill is certainly uh-huh. um, absolutely enhanced by having different perspectives. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's always very powerful. So uh-huh. even if it's just someone else that's um, worked, you know, for you or hit taken lessons from you that, that might start working with an athlete uh, in your own facility, uh-huh. it can still kind of add to them keeping it um, engaged and fresh. And we know that right. learning is learning is when um, we're going through a process of failure and um, not understanding, right? That's when we do our greatest uh-huh. amount of learning. So uh-huh. it's not always doing something perfectly and doing it repetitively perfectly that where our learning grows. So, um, yeah, yeah. perspective and, and uh, variety can certainly be a great aspect of, of the learning curve. Right, right. Of course, having Lisa, Lisa Fernandez as um, um, a coach probably is uh, an interesting situation. She's kind of been there, done that type of thing. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. it's, uh, it's a blessing and a curse, I think, um, in some ways. <laughs> I, I, very, very little of a curse. But, you know, certainly when yeah. you have probably one of the greatest players to ever play the yeah. game, kind of, right. you know, barking, barking things at you about what you didn't do right, it can be like, wow it's not just a coach telling me I'm doing it wrong. It's, it's <laughs> the greatest player to ever play the game. Telling me to do I it know. Wrong. So, yeah. And, and I also think um, our athletes do a great job of really being able to relate to her. She's grown so much uh, as a coach mm-hmm. and as yeah. a, a leader. Um, it's really been fun for me to see, especially in the last seven, eight years, the, the growth mm-hmm. that she's gone through. But one mm-hmm. of the interesting things is that, you know, they don't ever want to disappoint. Lisa. So uh-huh. sometimes they don't always tell her exactly what they were thinking, or they often say what they think they're supposed to say. Um, Lisa's such an amazing coach that through that conversation, she's going to finally get them to the point that they'll say, well, actually, yeah, I, I was thinking the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, Fantastic. it's an interesting, uh, fun journey for sure. Right. Right. So um, speaking of the team, you guys are number one rated. You're, uh, what is it, 37 and two, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think 37 and two sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like you hit the yeah, ball think, pretty good, but uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, things are good. You know, we've, we've had, um, you know, just different obstacles come at us, which is, which is good. Um uh-huh. You know, and, and we took a, a second loss of the year here on Friday against Oregon. And, and uh, coming off a weekend before where we played number 19 Arizona State and really, mm-hmm. um, honestly, couldn't do anything wrong uh, offensively mm-hmm. and, and even pitching-wise. It was a really dominant performance. And uh, yeah. so I think, it you know, the Oregon loss kind of snuck up on us. Um, I, I wouldn't say that we overlooked them but I think certainly um, they came in really hungry and prepared and, and uh, their pitcher threw mm-hmm. a great game and we really didn't um, adjust as quickly as we <laughs> should have yeah and so it was uh, yeah. we took a loss there and and uh, sometimes those losses can be um, helpful in the journey mm-hmm. um, to keep you mm-hmm. focused and moving forward as I said you know you don't learn a lot when you're just um, always doing everything right and winning Sometimes it yeah. takes um, some failure. Um, you know, we and it, honestly, in that game, even on Friday, we we had the uh, you know we were down two nothing or two runs in the seventh inning, and we uh, put a, a great cut on a ball that was you know inches away from being a home run, and that turned mm. into an out. And then uh, two uh, two batters later, we had a home run that that brought us within a run. And we had Rachel Garcia comes up and and hits a double. And we've got the tying mm-hmm. run on second base with two outs. And uh, so it was, we had ourselves in a position to still come back and tie it up or win it, um, but just came up a little bit short. So, yeah. um, like I said, those experiences are going to be good for us, I think, in the long run um, as we get going ready for postseason. So something to really a deep conversation, and I think you uh, would uh, appreciate and, and enjoy um making some sort of comment. And I've got two kind of references on this. Number one is of course the Virginia basket men's basketball team that won that lost the very first opening round last year and then come back yeah. and win a national title. And the coach, uh, forgot his name, um, uh, that he was being interviewed and talking about how that was such a painful experience, but he believes that probably that experience led to the ability or the potential to, uh, improve and work harder and to win the national title and how, I, I, uh, and you, yeah, yeah. 
I couldn't I couldn't imagine that it that it it, it wasn't anything but an absolute motivator uh, for their off season yeah. and moving this year. It, I, I I guarantee that that the effects of that um, led them to a position to be to winning a national title. You know, to mm-hmm. win a national title, it it takes a lot of things. It, it does take mm-hmm. um, some luck. It does take some breaks. It does take those things. But if you haven't put in the hard work and really created the mindset about being relentless and, and uh, resilient, um, mm-hmm. then when those opportunities come up, um, they tend not to kind of affect the game. So I guarantee that if you look back into every one of those athletes that went through that tough loss the year before, um, there was something that was resonating in them that was driving them that um, mm-hmm. absolutely affected their journey this year. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know a little bit about national titles. How many national titles have you been a part of? Well, um, NCAA titles, I've been part of six. So uh, okay. from the NCAA championships. And then I coached, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, uh, at the high level with the Olympic team and, and with the women's mm-hmm. uh, major level. And I, I won uh, four consecutive national titles with my women's major team um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So. That was wow. uh, that was great. And then as a youth coach, when I was uh, 17, came into mm-hmm. UCLA, I won my first national title uh, coaching a wow. uh, youth ASA 15 and under uh, team. Yeah. So I guess that's a total of 11 right now, and I'm hoping to, <laughs> to uh, continue get to more. that before I retire. Yeah. Cause I'm gonna yeah. And I would love to uh, have a few more national titles uh, if, yeah, if possible. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Some of us um, – I, I do not have any national titles to my resume, and some of us like to have one, and, and you're going for a dozen. So congratulations on that, by the way. Well, thank you. I've been very fortunate to be part of some, some great programs with some great athletes. Yeah. the um, And it's a, um, and you hear the coach, it, uh, a lot of there, – there's a ton of stuff that obviously goes into a national title. A ton of stuff goes into a conference title let alone a, uh, yeah. a national title. And it's the, what the coaches are doing. It's not only in the things you're talking about. It's not only the relationship the coaches have with the players, the coaches have internally, uh, the recruiting, the teaching, the, uh, it's just so much uh, that has to come together that is pretty, pretty amazing. I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned Olympics. Uh, I think the softball world uh, is pretty disappointed that the was it 2024 is not going to yeah. have Olympics, but the 2020. Do you know what happened there? Is it and they're they're having break dancing I, instead of softball? What, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, um, obviously I, I don't have I'm not privy to any inside information, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know one of the challenges uh, 2024 was LA was going after 2024, obviously, mm-hmm. and. Um, obviously, if the U.S. were to get the Olympics, it would it would be um, pretty consistent with adding softball and baseball back in. And right. obviously, Japan had added it in for 2020, so 2024 was going to be a great opportunity to go back to back and kind of mm-hmm. reestablish that baseball yeah. and softball would be, um, you know, every year kind of sports. Mm-hmm. So when all that debacle came up with the um, the IOC with just literally throwing it into the hands of Paris and um, LA to be able to make the decision who was going to have 2024 and who was going to have 2028, you know, and they, they kind of stepped away Mm -hmm. and said, you two figure it out because Paris can't hold out till 2028. You, the LA, you know, uh, USA, Mm -hmm. US can hold out to 2028, but you guys decide. And I think, Mm. you know, I, I believe in the best spirit of what, the Olympic spirit is, I think, you know, the, the U S Olympic committee said, you know, we can hold out on LA until 2028 and, and be dealing with our infrastructure. And we would Mm. postpone that and and allow Paris to take 2024. But the problem is that the European contingent is extremely powerful and strong in the Olympic movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not really softball is not, very well uh, represented in the international mm-hmm. level um, in, in those countries. And so mm-hmm. while each of those countries have teams, they aren't necessarily high priorities in their own NGBs, uh, national mm-hmm. governing bodies. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, you know, I, I was hoping that uh, the, the U.S. 
LA 2024 was going to be able to kind of pressure or at least influence um, France to be able to uh, to kind of keep baseball and softball in there in 2024 because it, it mm. certainly would be the plan to have it in in 2028. So unfortunately, they went a different route, um, which um, went a little bit even outside traditional sport um, to add you know, breakdancing uh, is one of the sports. Uh-huh. So that's certainly disappointing, <laughs> I think, on many layers. Yeah, um, it is. Not it only is. for athletes, but I, I think uh-huh. in general um, for the sport and I think, and to be honest with you, for the Olympic movement, I, I, I think it's a movement that's away from where we should be focused on, which is, is uh-huh. more team sports and less yeah. um, uh, auxiliary issues. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It is disappointing. But excited for 2028. Uh, Um. Obviously. So hopefully that will that will come full circle. Right. Now we it is 2020 as well, right? 2020. Yeah. Japan is hosting that, and obviously Mm -hmm. Japan is the current uh, reigning gold medalist. Um, They they Mm -hmm. won it uh, the last gold medal. So it was, and you know, baseball and softball are, are a big part of their culture. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it was almost a no brainer that, uh, when they had the opportunity to put it in, they would. Um, so I think just as it is in an American, um, you know, uh, sports that are kind of part right. of our American culture, it is the same in, mm-hmm. in Japan. So that's where it was really kind of exciting when it was going to look like it was going to be back to back, um, opportunity for mm-hmm. two sports that are, are a big part of their cultures to be in the Olympics. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully that will um, um, will work out, and, and um, yeah, there's a disappointing, but looking forward to 2020 or 2020, 2020, and um, that is uh, going to be super exciting to see that again. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You do you have any current former players? That, I haven't seen the current roster. Do you have uh, that's going to yeah, be participating? Um, yeah, we do. We've got several. We have several. Um, I mean, our one of our current athletes, obviously, um, in Rachel Garcia, is is currently on the national team and uh, has a great shot at, at making that team. And she'll know probably within the next um, probably six six to seven months. Um, they'll have uh-huh. a better idea. I think the final. Final tryout will be in January of uh, mm. of of 2020. But um, mm. so she obviously is a great candidate, and Bubba Nichols um, is another one of our current athletes who I coached on the Junior World National Champion or Junior World Championship team um, two summers ago, and she's mm-hmm. been very integral in the national team system. Currently not on the team right now, but uh, she certainly will be in that tryout along with several other athletes. Some of our yeah. alumni, uh, Ali Cardo. Um, has mm-hmm. has put herself in a great position to be on that team year in year out, as well as Delaney Spalding um, in the shortstop. So I expect that both of them will have a great shot and a great chance of being um, on that team that goes to uh, to Tokyo in 2020. Yeah, fantastic! It's, it's again <laughs> super exciting. So um, you've got um, um, let's see, Oregon State. You just or now. I apologize. You were at Oregon, right? At one time, you no, were no, head coach at Oregon. At Oregon State. So, yeah, Oregon State. We're okay. heading back Oregon State. Yeah, so we're heading back okay. up to uh, kind of where I was for 18 years. Yeah. 18 years. Yeah, over 500 yeah. wins as a head coach there, and um, and uh, I think if I read right, when you took the job, so uh, at at that time you were assisting. You were at UCLA, and then you took the Oregon State job, correct? Yeah, I, I had been yeah. um, at UCLA. I graduated and then was hired full time at UCLA and had been there. Mm-hmm. And ironically, actually, um, uh, I I don't know if I ever would have left UCLA had there not been NCA rule that passed, which was uh, called the restricted earnings coach. And and mm-hmm. many people that were around the NCA know that very uh, intimately that it created coaching positions. But in some incidents, like ours at UCLA, it actually reduced my job. So mm. I went from being a full-time um, assistant and was re- reduced down to a restricted earnings. So I could only make – I capped it, whatever it was, at $15,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was um, – and it became uh, a really challenge, obviously, financially, to be living in L.A. Um, and working yeah. full-time at, <laughs> at a restricted salary. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I had been recruiting for several other positions and had turned them down. Um, but at this point in time, it was an opportunity in the Pac-10 or Pac-10 at the time. And it was, you know, a situation where I just felt like I, I, I don't know that I had a lot of 
opportunity to continue to stay at UCLA because the other two uh, coaches were, were not leaving uh-huh. and um, I wasn't going to be able to make a living. So uh-huh. um, I took the, took the head coaching job at Oregon state and uh, it was a, an amazing run and experience. Uh, a few years later, the, uh, the NCAA was sued and, and uh, found to be guilty of violating um, the federal constitution by restricted earnings. So that, that whole policy <laughs> of restricted earnings actually was a federal um, violation of federal law. So, uh-huh. Unfortunately, it happened after I left, but fortunately, it created an opportunity yeah. for me to grow as a as a head coach. And uh-huh. uh, and my experience at Oregon State was wonderful. I thought I would be there for maybe three to five years when I took the job, uh-huh. and yeah. um, we we started to have some significant success within year three, and we were getting ranked in the top twenty. And by the uh, by my Third, end of my third year, we were in the top 20 and didn't drop out of the top 20 for the next nine years. So wow. I, I, wow. I felt um, able to win and be successful and, and took our team to highest ranked up to number three in the country and, uh, and an appearance at the College World Series. So. Fantastic. That's ex- extremely exciting. Um, so then you're there 18 years and um, did an opportunity at UCLA become available? That had to be a tough choice for you, even going back to your home, but it still had to be a difficult choice yeah. to go back. So, um, yeah, the kind of, I guess uh, there's a little bit of a, a minor story in the middle there. So in, in 2005, um, I was the head coach and, and had been coming off of being the Pac-10 coach of the year, and we'd won the Pac-10. Mm-hmm. And um, my partner and I at the time were going through the adoption process. And so mm-hmm. we ended up adopting um, my now daughter. And mm-hmm. um, so that was a, a you know, a big change in our life and kind of our situation and, and what kind of transpired then um, several years later, obviously um, when this position at UCLA became apparent open, um, I was on the phone with Kelly, the head coach constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was integrally tied into the program still. So I was helping them mm-hmm. try to figure out who they would bring in and who they were going to hire and, oh, wow. and who would be the best fit. And, and so I mm-hmm. was again, talking with Sue Inquist. Um, we were all kind of just, constantly on the phone and talking and, you know, and Sue kept saying, you know, you know, what if, what if it'd be great if you could come down, Kirk, what do you, that would be amazing. And I said, yes, but I'm <laughs> in my situation now with my family, and I, you know, all the reasons yeah. why you couldn't, but the more we kept talking over the next few weeks, um, trying to find somebody and find the right fit, it became more and more apparent that really, um, there really only was one fit that was going to be the, the best opportunity for the program to kind of regain some, some momentum um, mm-hmm. And I was flattered by it, um, being um, that it was a situation that they really felt like the only option was for me to come back. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't necessarily, um, it was obviously a move from a head coach down to an assistant, but it was moving back to a program that I cared deeply about that was one of mm-hmm. our most historic, um, you know, programs in the country. And oh, it yeah. wasn't yeah. Um, really successful at the time. They were really struggling at the time. So mm-hmm. um there was a lot of, I guess, emotional reasons for me to want to come back. And then the opportunity to uh, bring my daughter back down to L.A. and be close to her cousins and my family mm-hmm. um, was a big part of the reason why it just felt like it was the right opportunity. Um, I had signed a three-year deal at Oregon State at the time, and so I was planning on retiring after that contract. Um, and so obviously coming back down here kind of, changed the timeline on my retirement and uh, what we wanted to do. But it was uh, uh, definitely a move for many reasons um, that were uh-huh. mainly emotional and not necessarily professional. Right, right. So uh, to uh, first of all, um, what's your daughter's name? Can you say that? My daughter is Ava, and, yeah, Ava? Ava, and uh-huh. she is 12 now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. Now, uh, at the time, 2005, and uh, I guess my question is, did your partner come with you to L.A.? And this is a little personal, but, uh, yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, we, uh, we, uh, we, our whole family moved back down here to L.A., um, and we mm-hmm. were down here uh, all together. Um, during the time uh, when we were down here, my partner and I ended up separating, and um, mm. it was kind of the best scenario for, for them. Uh, my my partner, my ex, and my mm-hmm. daughter to move back up to Portland to our old neighborhood with friends and family and and people that oh, were up there. Okay. So, 
Yeah. They both live in Portland now, and uh, I have my daughter as, as much as I can and as often as I can, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, on great terms with my uh, with my ex. So it's it's mm-hmm. a, a positive situation, but uh, tough for me because she's not here in L.A. But uh, uh, it has to we, be. We were yeah. all down here in L.A. for for about three three or four years before they moved back. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is uh, difficult. I experienced a little bit of that as, as well. And it's, it is a difficult situation. So, um, <clears throat> you're going back to Oregon state. Obviously you get a chance now to see your daughter and, um, yeah. uh, again, yeah. uh, so that's good. And is there, um, how, is there like, cause, so you leave there, it, I guess the, the Oregon state, cause it's been what, seven years ago is when you left there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So do you get yeah, treated so, like uh, with the red carpet or? <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, honestly, I, I'm very, very uh, fortunate. You know, most times when a coach leaves a program, mm-hmm. it's kind of under dark of night and clean out mm-hmm. your office and you kind of are wiped clean from the slates and yeah, and you kind of move on, especially if you're moving to an, a, a rival in the, in the conference. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had just the opposite experience. Um, you know, the the day I told my athletic director, it was a very hard emotional day because um, of the, the program that I'd been a part of building. And he said to me very, very frankly, he said, I understand. He's like, I'm not even going to insult you with um, trying to um, make this a financial situation. He said, I know if you're leaving this to go back to UCLA, this is not about a career move mm. financially. And wow. I, and I said, he just 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 verified that's the case, and I said that's the case. And he said, <laughs> "Okay, then let's move on." And he said, I, "I need to know what do I need to do? Who do I need to hire? Um, what's the plan? Wow. Where do we go with the program?" And Fantastic. you know that was such an amazing uh, mm-hmm. gift that he gave me, um, just yes. even in offering it um, mm-hmm. and, and making that statement. And I'll always respect um, Bob DeCarolis for for mm-hmm. doing that. And and it was great because uh, I did have a lot of passion and care for the athletes and the, the, the university and the athletic department. Mm-hmm. So um, I told him, I said very clearly, uh, you need to hire uh, my my first assistant at the time, Laura Burke. I said, you need to hire mm-hmm. Laura. She's only been back coaching two years. Um, what she doesn't know about running a program, <clears throat> my director of ops at the time, Heather Smith, she can mm-hmm. run the program. She's been with me from day one, and she's mm-hmm. amazing. I said, so make sure that she's hired full-time. You hire Laura Berg um, as your head coach, and she will become a, a great coach uh, in the Pac-12 with her experience and um, and go from there. And, and he did, and they did, and she's done a great job of kind of building her own <laughs> legacy and her own career in the last few years. They went through a little bit of a down downward spiral um, for a year or two kind of regrouping and then really have come back very, very strong and, um, obviously still very close with both them and their entire staff. Um, not as close with the athletes because I, I didn't re- – yeah. the last athlete that I recruited um, actually really graduated last year. Mm-hmm. So um, not really close with the athletes in the same way, but certainly with their staff. And when I go back, you know, it's very easy to walk through the athletic department and see all the old coaches and administrators and secretaries and administrative assistants and academic staff and – they're wonderful. They're great. They come uh-huh. out and they're, they're super excited to me. It's a very uh, close knit group. And so I was fortunate to be a part of their family for 18 years and they still treat mm. me like family. And it, uh, yeah. it's wonderful. That's wonderful. So yeah. I'm excited to go back and go to a few of my favorite um, eating mm-hmm. restaurants and see some of the people in town because uh, as I said, it's a, it's a town of 55, 60,000 people. So you, you mm. know a lot of people in town <laughs> when you're there for 18 years. So Yeah. Yeah, um, a little different than L.A. It's a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But, but yeah. I will say that um, that year that I left Oregon State and came back to UCLA, my my return to UCLA was equally as powerful because so many of the coaches, head coaches, mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. either athletes or assistant coaches when I was there the first time. So, mm-hmm. And then many of the administrators were there. So when I came back, I, I literally felt like I could run for president. I was leaving Corvallis that was with all this love and admiration, mm-hmm. and I was coming back to UCLA with open arms and celebratory and wow. just so excited. So it was really um, – my ego took a huge boost for that year. <laughs> and, then, and then reality struck in. It's like, okay, now yeah. you're going to win. So, uh, um, funny. You know, but uh, it it was definitely a, a really powerful year for me to experience yeah. um, kind of being really valued. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Yeah. Let's. I want to talk about um, a little bit. Partly the uh, the direction of Gap to Gap Radio and is uh, called it Gap to Gap because I'm a hitting instructor and Gap to Gap is a hitting approach of course, hitting it <laughs> from Gap to Gap. And I like the right. focus because Gap to Gap is kind of also let's focus on really uh, important things. The middle. Uh, these are you know that's where I'm going to get more success and that kind of stuff. So. <clears throat> One yeah. of the focuses is because uh, I help girls create uh, recruiting videos and, and a little help them try to find college and and uh, work with that. And so one of the focuses, of course, is the recruiting process. <clears throat> and I find it very mm-hmm. interesting as a, uh, a former head coach at the college level, the small college colleges and stuff is uh, the recruiting process. I loved actually is part of the, the uh, job that I do miss a lot of it, one of the, one of many things I miss, but uh, each of the recruiting uh, process. So a real quick uh, aspect, obviously recruiting it's, you know, from those of us that are from the Midwest that, that have, uh, it's like we woke up, it's 40 degrees in the middle of the season today. (laughs) Uh, We got horrible weather. Yeah. uh, And I've, I've actually wanted, I've taken teams to LA. I've taken teams to, uh, California to Florida and stuff like that because it's always cold here at, at the first half of the season. Right. But right. Um, so recruiting, I could imagine, you know, uh, Indiana University go into uh, Southern California to try to recruit and say, could you want to come to Bloomington, Indiana, or you want to go to Los Angeles, California? That's an advantage in itself. But uh, UCLA recruiting uh, as a you know, obviously, I think probably most people would say historically number one softball program in the country. So give a breakdown a little bit of what, when you all kind of, as a coaching staff, decide recruiting. Walk us through just a few steps, not detail, but a few steps of yeah. your recruiting uh, yeah, philosophy. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be to be right here in Southern California. There's a lot of things hmm. that, you know, and, and obviously I think it's the most amazing university. It's, you know, a beautiful hmm. campus. It's in a beautiful weather. So there's all these wonderful things that I think um, it's very easy to sell UCLA on. And then you add in, um, obviously, the, the success of the program, the history of the program, mm-hmm. starting back in the 70s and late 70s and early 80s. So it, it does feel amazingly powerful to be able to be recruiting to an institution like that. At the same time, um, it can be very intimidating. So, you know, our academics are very, very strong and you're, you're going to walk into a classroom with, you know, an average, I, I think 4.2 is the average GPA of the incoming freshman. Oh my gosh. So, oh my gosh. So you're, you're, <clears throat> if you are, if you are not quite that level um, or, yeah. or just under that level, you you realize it can be very intimidating athletically it can be very intimidating so i i will tell you one of the things is it's finding the top talent is not necessarily difficult i think mm-hmm. um, most coaches in the country can sit back and do yeah. that very easily by watching and say there's mm-hmm. a top kid on that team there's a top kid on that team that's mm-hmm. not the hard thing it's uh, the hard thing is to find the right fit and that kid that has um the the gumption and the, the desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves um, and that aren't necessarily looking to be a big fish in a little pond because mm-hmm. um, as we're fortunate, UCLA is a big pond. You know, you're academically mm-hmm. with, you know, road scholars and people that are inventing and, right. and changing the world, you know, uh, ac- academically, which other schools have that as well. Um, and then you're also athletically in an, in an athletic department that's put out, you know, Jackie Robinson on Jackie Robinson Day <laughs> today, you know, um, yeah. you know Troy Aikman's the, you know, the basketball phenoms, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just on and on and on. And then yeah. in our sport alone, the Lisa Fernandez's and the, mm-hmm. the Jennifer Brundage's and, and the Natasha Watley's and uh, all these other athletes, specifically in softball. So you need to have an athlete that's willing to say, confident enough to say, I'm, I believe I can succeed here. And then mm-hmm. more importantly, willing to say, I, I'm willing to come there and be a part of something that's bigger than me and that mm-hmm. I realize I may not be the superstar. I may not uh-huh. be the only one that that can, um, you know, be the go-to. Finding the personality type that really is, is looking for that and, uh, and it will be the right fit. Um, but obviously we're fortunate because we have 
a great list of things to be able to celebrate and promote when we're recruiting. Um, right. And then for yeah. us to find that, that diamond in the rough um, is really um, what we have to focus in on. Mm-hmm. And as you say, finding the easy, the, the top level is, is not that difficult, but it's really interesting. And that's what I really like about these type of conversations is you talk to someone uh, or my experiences, like I didn't have that. Uh, it's, it's a, a, not a barrier, but you have to consider, can this girl fit into your program emotionally because of the expectations of just walking on campus? And that's, uh, that's a hard thing to figure out. You don't see that. Like you see talent. Very, very true. And that's, yeah. That's a layer of the recruiting. That's that's a challenge. And uh, you know, yeah. having experience recruiting at Oregon State, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it was a an interesting thing for me because I was recruiting to a program in the beginning that had no history, that mm-hmm. um, had didn't have a huge um, uh, reputation academically across the country, and yet was mm-hmm. academically very very strong. Um, mm-hmm. And then I didn't have a, an athletic program and athletic department that was highly successful either. So um, right. really during that period of time, what I learned there was I was recruiting athletes that was just a little bit different. I was recruiting athletes that were equally as talented, um, maybe a level below. They really wanted to be about building and creating and be the, be the big fish and, and be the mm-hmm. one that could make a difference. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, those were the athletes I needed to recruit because they yeah, had to carry definitely. a burden of being um, somebody that was going to carry the responsibility of, of whatever it was. And once we started getting a few of those athletes in the pitching position specifically, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. the recruiting kind of changed there again. And now I, I was able to start recruiting kids that wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And, mm-hmm. um, and to be in a town like Corvallis or in the state of Oregon, uh, student athletes are very high profile, so you had to be prepared to to be in that same, um, I guess, experience of being yeah. a part of something mm-hmm. bigger than yourself, even though there wasn't the history that there was right. at a UCLA. So I mm-hmm. found myself recruiting athletes that were, um, I found myself doing the same process in the recruiting of finding that kid with the character more than mm-hmm. just the talent. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously for me, I, I, um, I was fortunate to be part of UCLA. And, and so that style of recruiting became very easy for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but recruiting is a tough challenge. It always is, you know. Um, it is. The it great is. things about uh, recruiting, as you talked about, is the people you meet and that experience mm-hmm. of getting to know people and share things about your program and what you're trying to build and how you're trying to take young women and, develop them into being successful, confident females that will go out and, and, and do great things in the real world. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not about recruiting somebody to just go win a conference title. Um, so that's the, one of the greatest things about recruiting in general. Um, and I do love that. And I, I'm sure I will mm-hmm. use that part of it when I do retire. Yeah. Um, you can't get, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, but the, the hard thing about the recruiting is that it has completely changed um, the process of recruiting. And that's, not something that I'll, I will probably miss. <laughs> <laughs> the rules um, and everything. Yeah. Just, well, and just the, the way you have to go about recruiting these days yeah. and, and the early mm-hmm. verbals and, and the, the, mm-hmm. the power of, of the coaches to have influence. And to be honest with you, the younger the athletes are committing, the less they're focused on the bigger, on the better issues. Mm-hmm. They're focused on mm-hmm. the flash and the, the scholarship and the flash and the uniforms yeah. and the stadiums and the, and the things that we all know at the end won't sustain you when you're having a bad day. Um, exactly. The, the mantra that I used mm-hmm. to always, always tell our kids at Oregon State is, I, I want you, I want you to come here, <clears throat> but I want you to come here because it's where you want to be. Mm-hmm. I don't want to convince you. If I have to spend four mm-hmm. years convincing you this is the place for you, I'm going to be wasting my energy and, and be exhausted. I'm not going to be able to coach. So, exactly. So um, in the end, <clears throat> I used to have them always ask the question, um, is, is Oregon State someplace that you want to be on your worst day? When you fail the test, you're probably fighting with your roommate, your parents are, you know, mad at you, whatever it might be. Um, your dog died, whatever. You're having the mm-hmm. worst day. It, is Oregon State still where you want to be? Are you around the people that you want to be around and you're in the institution that you want to be at? 
Because if you are, then that bad day doesn't turn into a bad week. It just turns into a bad day. And we all have them. We all have them. Yeah. And you're going to have many in your four, year, four or five years as an undergrad. But uh. if, if you're not at the right place, that bad day turns into a bad week. That bad week turns into a bad month, turns into a bad quarter or semester. And now you transfer and go somewhere else. And mm, so powerful. you have to make a decision, not where you are because on your recruiting visits. Oh my gosh, you could be mm-hmm. in the middle of a <laughs> snowstorm in, you mm-hmm. know, the tundra and you're happy because you're the, you're mm-hmm. the center of attention. Right. Mm-hmm. But you mm-hmm. have to go to the bottom of saying, where do I want to be on my worst day? Not on my best day. Mm-hmm. Cause on my best day, I can be anywhere. Anywhere. So, yeah. um, that's a, that's a, a philosophy that I still to this day really encourage all of those athletes, you know, even the ones we come to UCLA, you know, even mm-hmm. if you come to UCLA and you are injured and you're not playing and you're, you know, struggling, you know, in, in a class or, or something, still where you want to be. And if it is, you'll put in the hard work to get through that mm-hmm. bad day and not let it become a bad week. Mm-hmm. And that's really the important thing. Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, we could talk uh, all day on that. And you made a comment. I do want um, <clears throat> to uh, repeat this um, is the thing you're looking for is the right fit. And you're trying to, you know, the and you continue to talk about the emotional aspect of the recruiting process, because the physical part, as you said, that's fairly easy. And that's kind of a, you know, there's the borderline, the gray area of those athletes, but the right fit from your all's perspective, the right fit from the athlete's perspective and I think if what you're saying is amazing advice is make sure that you know, to all of them that's listening, so all these, the parents and the athletes that are listening, whether it's a division three program in Kentucky or a division one program in California or the West coast or uh, UCLA, the right fit is what you have to find. Yeah. And, emotionally and right as much fit, as anything. Yeah, absolutely. And the right fit, yeah. um, it doesn't mean that there's only one fit, but you want to find right. the right fit for you. And that's why, you know, I highly encourage that anybody that's going through that recruiting process to look at several institutions, but look at several types of institutions. So look at, mm-hmm. at, at maybe a, a D1 school, look at a school in a big city, look at a school that's mm-hmm. more in a rural area, look at, at the different options of, of where you might want to go academically and, and regionally, because at the end of the day, um, you can't just go because of the softball team and their, their win-loss record or the, their stadium mm-hmm. or that they have the best uniforms or they've got the biggest locker room. I mean, all of those things are <laughs> wonderful and nice, and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with those right. things. But those are not things that are going to sustain you um, when, you're, when you're going through the grind. And mm-hmm. what will sustain you when you're going through that grind is, is the people, you know, is the people that you're around. I'll say the coaches, um, but I'll also say the athletes and, and the, uh, the students on campus. So it's not just, just the people that you're uh, on your team, but it's also people that are on campus. Do you, do you fit well on campus with, with Volvere? Do you feel comfortable? Is that where you feel supported? Is that where you feel like you're able to thrive? Um, mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what you want to find. And as a parent now, um, any, any parent that's really not keeping that perspective um, really it, that's challenging because it, mm-hmm. it is all about what happens after they graduate, not during their four years. And what happens after they graduate is going to be directly affected by their ability to be successful and thrive during that four to five years. Yeah. Um, and, and amazing. Get that degree, so. yeah. yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. And it's a, uh, it's higher calling for sure to be involved with that. And uh, speaking yeah. of higher calling, we want to try because uh, you got a meeting. And again, I appreciate you being here. I do want to talk about something. I don't know if it's exactly. So you mentioned 2005, your adoption and stuff. I think you did. Um, so I don't know exactly the year and the process, but I, from what I understand, you came out when you were at Oregon State. Was that around that same time? Yeah, it was um, it was that fall of 2005. We came off our one of our most successful years at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won the Pac-12 or Pac-10 at the time, and um, mm-hmm. and I knew I was doing the adoption process, so I needed to tell my team at that period of mm-hmm. time. Um, I had been with my partner for about nine years, and mm-hmm. um, I was certainly out to family and some friends, uh, maybe a few peers, but really not out mm-hmm. in any substantial way. So. Um, and I was out to even people at work at Oregon State. So it wasn't mm-hmm. um, really anything I was hiding, but it wasn't anything I was sharing. Right. So 
but the one, my biggest concern, and I think this is the powerful thing for me, was when we were going to go through that adoption process, it was an open adoption, and I didn't want my team to hear that from somebody else. I didn't want somebody else to have mm-hmm. that power to be able to say, oh, did you know your coach is gay, or did you know your coach is adopting with his partner? Or I didn't want that um, because of the bond and the respect and the trust that you build with your team. It's very, very important. And I was mm-hmm. really concerned that that was going to be violated. Um, so I knew that, that I needed to tell them first before we fully jumped in the adoption process. And um, mm-hmm. so I did. Um, it was the fall of 2005, and I, I told my team it was the opening first meeting of the year, and we had this great meeting, great energy, the most talented team I'd ever had. It was great. And I just thought this is as good a time as any, and I told them and <laughs> rambled for a few minutes and then – um, you know, asked if they had any questions and all the questions they had were about, you know, the baby, when was the baby coming? Was it a boy? Was it a girl? What's the name? I'm like, it was all about that. Yeah. And, you know, 15, 20 questions in, I'm like, any other questions or concerns? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, nope, we're good. No, we're good. So it was good. And, um, at the time, um, I had known Sid Ziegler, uh, without sports, um, for about mm-hmm. 10 years. Uh, when he wow. started it, actually, I met him the year he started it and we were here in LA and I was recruiting and, so I knew him and he always said, you know, whenever you're ready, let me know and I'll do a story. And I'm like, ah, eh, it's not that important. It doesn't matter. I'm not, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so I had told him that about telling my team and he said, well, does that finally mean I can do a story? And I'm like, sure, go for it. I'm like, I, that was my only concern. And, uh, so he did, he did a story and, and, uh, actually Jim Bazinski actually wrote the story and, and it was, um, and it was great. It was wonderful, and and I was very thankful for the the respect they gave me in the in the mm-hmm. article, and it kind of created a little bit of a landslide. Um, about mm-hmm. two days later, I got a call from the Portland Tribune, and they wanted to do an article. And then about a week later, ESPN magazine called, and then a week later, the the Daily News from New York called, and so all of a sudden there was all of this escalation. And through that process, um, I guess in researching it. I guess I was, I was labeled as the first coach to be publicly out, um, mm-hmm. Division One coach to be publicly out in any sport, male or female. And um, you know, when that was label was put on me, I just said, no, I, I'm not. I know there's other coaches, and they, were, they kept saying who, and I'm like, and I just, ah, I, no, yeah, I was like, yeah. I guess I can't say because if, yeah. <laughs> if they're not made a statement publicly, even though I know that they're out. I'm mm-hmm. like, I can't really make that statement. So it was really a challenge. And that yeah. really, to be honest with you, really led me um, down a path of, of uh, uh, being an advocate, sports advocate that was really powerful mm-hmm. and, and a great passion for mine um, and helped Nike launch the Be True campaign, um, was working with Nike at the time. And they signed me that year um, because of part of because of success of my program, but also partly because they were very, very excited about my, my social activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that was a, a great run and, you know, helping athletes and coaches now through that process um, of being true to themselves and being authentic is a great, great passion of mine. And mm-hmm. uh, the quality coaches Alliance group started a few years after that with about four people. And, you know, mm-hmm. now it's topping 800. Um, wow. And it's, it's wow. really an exciting time. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Now, um, I guess on a, uh, the positive side, becoming authentic, there's nothing like it, obviously. And I think everybody reaches that self-actualization uh, that tries mm-hmm. to spend their whole life becoming self, self-actualized, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. And that's um, <clears throat> pretty incredible uh, experience on one. So the positive things internally that you were dealing with um, was amazing. Externally, you were getting the uh, publications and the, and the stuff to kind of reinforce a lot of that and to help other people. Uh, negative stuff that kind of was difficult. Any of that type of stuff happen? Um, yeah, you know, honestly, um, I, I there was I I really can't think of any um, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. And, I, and yeah. I I was in a small town, a very conservative town with donors that average age, you know, 70 to 80, um, uh-huh. and we, many, many donor functions. And I can't tell you the amount of respect I received from um, the football coaches, both Mike Riley, uh, who was there, and, and uh, all his staff, 
um, and the basketball coaches and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, that were there. I mean, it, it, it was really amazing. Um, and the interesting thing and the most successful thing was our, we had the most successful team we ever had that year. And part of it was we created a bond by me sharing something very vulnerable mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. brought that team closer together. And that's the team that went all the way to uh, the College World Series and, and held the wow. longest um, undefeated streak throughout mm-hmm. the year that year. Mm-hmm. So um, the team, it's, it's been nothing but positive to be honest with you. And yeah, and maybe it's my perspective and I, and I don't really focus a lot on negatives and right. making right. reasons why and blaming. Um, mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I've had great opportunity and, and, um, and have felt nothing but support and empowerment from uh, both other LGBT athletes and coaches, but, mm-hmm. but also, um, many, many coaches who are obviously who are straight that just respect mm. the integrity um, and the authenticity and, and uh, my ability to be uh, true. Um, yeah. So I, I think that resonates in sports more than people realize. Um, I've right. said it for a long time. I believe sports is far, far more welcoming um, for LGBT individuals than we've ever believed, but we've very rarely given that chance um, because – there are bad situations and mm-hmm. there are fearful situations for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But if the reality is, is that people in athletics respect hard work, commitment, loyalty. And mm-hmm. those are the things that they portray. And those are the things that you're going to be judged upon as a teammate or as a coach. And, um, and so I, I really feel like that's where the core values of athletics have really actually, for the most part, create a, a situation that's more accepting than most people have ever believed. Um, mm-hmm. And the other reason why I think that that's always portrayed poorly is that when there is somebody like, you know, uh, Penny Hardaway or, or somebody that even on a smaller level, just on a team that makes a, you know, a statement or says something and, and it, that's inappropriate or, or homophobic, it's always escalated to that that's the entire culture of yeah. a team or a sport. Mm-hmm. And it and unfortunately, the squeaky wheel is the one that everyone thinks about. Meanwhile, that same team probably has four or five teammates going, oh, my God, he's such an idiot. Why did he say that? I don't believe that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they don't believe right. what that squeaky wheel thing, but they don't speak up because mm-hmm. it's, it's not really personal to them. There's no reason mm-hmm. for them to speak up. And mm-hmm. so those allies, I think, have become more vocal. And I also think just in general, um, more um, LGBT athletes being out and coaches being visible have definitely made it a, 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 uh, a dialogue about um, accepting diversity and valuing um, people for more than just some of those peripheral issues um, right. that yeah. often were judged upon. So, yeah. yeah. It's uh, friends of mine that have come out and, and experiences that I've experienced. Uh, you see people that ex- go through this. The the fear of the negative scares people so much, and then almost exclusively across, even in Louisville, Kentucky, it's not yeah. liberal that much. I mean, it's more liberal in Louisville than it is the rest of the state. But even in this sure. area, almost always the story is, well, I thought it was going to be worse than it is. It's actually ended up better um, and the fear, I don't by any means encourage anybody to come out until they're ready. But um, yeah. but I think if it's just pure fear, I think a lot of times it's it just is better than you think it's going to be. Yeah, and I you know it it gets better is is a reality. Mm-hmm. And and even if it is fearful, most of those um, situations that we fear are never really realized. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, that, right. and I agree with you. That being said, everyone needs to be uh, <clears throat> on their own timeline. And I yeah. also think that it's important to have some some support network, whether it be your mm-hmm. family or it be uh, some close friends, because it, it is a process that is um, challenging in the beginning. But yeah, but the cool thing that I've seen, and time and time again uh, within the athletic world, is that teams that have had players or coaches come out often have some of the most successful years um, mm-hmm. during that process. And, and I, again, go back to, you know, people value and respect when people share vulnerability and, and are a part of, you know, a team. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's nothing more vulnerable than sharing your sexuality. <laughs> which yeah. Which is something yeah. you're going to be <laughs> exactly. about for most of your life. 
yeah. and being an yeah. invisible minority is a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I, I don't encourage people to come out just to come out, but I encourage mm-hmm. that when they are in a good situation that they can make a bigger effect on other people, not just on their own life. Um, because yeah. being a visible minority is much better than an invisible minority. For sure. And that's, uh, well, I'll finish with the thing is that that's the thing that um, I, one of my, my things that I say to a lot of people as we continue in the LGBT community, we continue to preach to the choir, so to speak. We're always talking to other people or, or allies in the LGBT community. There has to be avenues to bridge the gap between the LGBT community and allies to the people that need to be need to hear these stories. So I appreciate so much what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, thank uh, you. it's definitely a passion of mine and something I'll continue to be working at for a, for a long time. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for those that are LGBT ish coaches, and I'm going to say ish, I didn't mean ish LGBT. <laughs> I meant LGBT coaches ish. Uh, those that are into coaching that are uh, wanting to coach that have been coaching that um, would like to connect with you in that way? Do you want, would you want to have them uh, connect with you somehow, or do you want Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Uh, there's, yeah. there's several ways to yeah, get a hold of me. Obviously, uh, the website at UCLA, my email is, is always accessible, and, and uh, mm-hmm. that's certainly an easy route that way. If you're on Facebook, Facebook is another great resource, and that's where we house both the student, LGBT student-athlete group, Go Space, uh, which mm-hmm. has almost 700 members, and then Equality Coaches Alliance is also housed there as a secret group. So we do have uh, coaches in the group and people working in professional sports that are not out publicly, mm-hmm. um, and they're in a safe space. But we have many, 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 a vast majority that are um, out in some capacity that are, are great resources. And we have every sport rec- represented, football, basketball, men's sports, women's sports, uh, you name it, uh, from across mm-hmm. the country in, in virtually every state. So um, reach out to me there, Kirk Walker um, on Facebook. Uh, I'm fairly easily found. And uh, obviously, uh, Equality Coaching Alliance has has a public page, but, um, you know, obviously, if you wanted to be a part of the secret private group, that's something that I would love to be able to facilitate with anybody that's interested for the athletes or for coaches, sports professionals, yeah. administrators. Um, we have people in the NBA and NFL. We've got people everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we're everywhere. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Kirk, I know you got a meeting and I want to try to keep this around an hour anyway. I appreciate so much. I hope to get you back on because there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about at some point, maybe at the end of the year during the summer when it's a little bit slower. But uh, that would be great. I appreciate and hopefully it. celebrating a national championship. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, congratulate right. or uh, good luck and you uh, with Oregon State this weekend and coming up and that's uh, that's going to be in Oregon. So uh, what Corvallis? Yep, in Corvallis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, that again is somewhat of a homecoming for you as well. So have a great weekend. Have a good season, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks, Holly. Uh, thanks. All right, that was Kirk Walker from UCLA, and they're having a, another amazing season, uh, getting ready to play Oregon State at Oregon State uh, for the weekend. It said they're 37-2, and two, currently ranked number one in the country NCAA Division I. Uh, so uh, he is the assistant coach, and the cool thing that they do is very unique, uh, I think, is I, I've never done it personally, not, uh, not on purpose, um, and uh, 25 years as a head coach is um, a son coaches that I currently have kind of mix, uh, mix the roles. Typically uh, they have strengths and you say they're a pitching person and they're a hitting person. They're an infield person. A lot of times the infield people can do hitting or vice versa, but they do a little bit of mixing up in that area. So there's some strengths to that, um, which is really, really interesting. So, uh, anyway, that was um, a really cool interview. Got to know uh, Kurt a little bit better and um, the program a little bit better. If you have any comments or questions, you can contact me at holly at National Diamond Academy. 
uh, com. My, that's my website, National Diamond Academy, Gap to Gap Radio. Um, comments there, send me emails. I've got my uh, contact information there as well. We are on air every Monday, or most every Monday, unless something uh, comes up that I just can't avoid, uh, from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock um, Eastern time. So hope to hear from you. Hope that you can join us again. And I will talk to you next week as we um, uh, get it for the next show. And have a happy Easter uh, coming up this weekend. Um, Thank you. Have a great day.